Welcome! This is the Gender-Based Violence Information Management System, or the GBV-IMS, a podcast where we talk about safe, ethical, and useful GBV data management in humanitarian settings. I'm Christy Crabtree. This marks the midway point through our series on the steps of GBV case management. This time we'll talk about case action planning. This is the planning with the survivor to meet their needs. Laura Canali, a GBV Technical Advisor for International Medical Corps, joins us today to talk about this step. Welcome, Laura. Hi, Christy. So this step flows from the previous one on assessment. Can you talk about how these two steps are connected? Sure. So basically, the action plan builds on the assessment. So what the case manager should be doing is to summarize the findings and the needs identified during the assessment phase to the survivor so that the case manager can make sure that the needs have been understood correctly, eventually asking at the end of the summary provided if the summary is correct or if there was anything that was left out and have the survivor agreeing on the needs identified during the assessment. So once you've summarized those needs, where do you go from there? Once you summarize the needs, you have two main things that you have to do during your case action plan. One is providing the information to the survivor, information about what services and what type of supports are available and what can be expected from those services. So this includes a few things. One, for example, is what type of support is available. The second is anything related to mandatory reporting requirements associated with the specific uh, service. So so mandatory reporting means uh, any reporting that is mandated by the law of the country where we operate for a service provider to call the police or report the incident uh, to someone else. So it happens, for example, in some countries for health services that the health staff is mandated once they receive a report of a rape, for example, In some countries, they are mandated to inform the police. So if that's the case in the country where we work, we want to make sure that the survivor is aware of this mandatory reporting before the referral is done. Moreover, we want to inform the survivor about benefits and risks of the service, and then that the survivor has the right to refuse or decline any part of intervention, whether it's the case management intervention or whether it's any other type of service. Last, we want to inform the survivor of the information that, in case of referral, will be shared, which information and with who to allow the referral to take place. So this is one of the two main steps that are done during the case action plan. The second is uh, plan together with the survivor how to meet the needs and then set the personal goals and make decisions about the next steps. So can you break down some of those steps of planning to meet needs and setting personal goals? What does that look like? How do you approach it? So the first thing is after you gave the survivor information about the services available, as we said before, we need to ask to the survivor which service, if they want to be referred to any of the services available. So we might just ask because, of course, the, the survivor is the person deciding if they want to receive a service. And then we ask for the informed consent for the referral to happen. This is one of the steps. Another one is identify who will be responsible for facilitating the interventions or the services of the plan. So, for example, the case manager can be responsible to facilitate the referral to another services. The survivor can be responsible to 
taking specific steps or specific action to put in place the safety plan that has been done, for example. So it has to be very clear who is responsible for what. Another step is discuss who will go with the survivor for the referral. So if the survivor accepts to be referred to another service, obviously the case manager can be available to go with the survivor to the other service provider if the survivor wants so. But this has been you know, carefully discussed before, including possible risk linked with the safety, for example. I mean, in many cases, especially if the case managers have been around for a while, the case managers are known in the community to be case managers. So having the survivor walking in a service together with that well-known in the community case managers might attract a bit of attention. So we want to make sure if, of all the pros and cons of every of these, uh, of these steps. The survivor can even decide to go by herself or maybe have a friend or a relatives going with her, for example. Another step is uh, discuss and set the personal goal with the survivor. And this is extremely important because part of the healing and recovery process of the survivors is linked with uh, an increased sense of empowerment and well-being. And to do this, it's important to identify short-term and realistic goals that the survivor can reach and that will contribute to her well-being. So this is very linked with the assessment, especially with the part of the assessment related to the psychosocial assessment, so the feelings of the survivor, the emotional state of the survivor. We can use those information collected during the assessment to formulate to help the survivor, to have the survivor formulate concrete goals and strategies on how to achieve those goals. So example, a survivor could feel isolated, alone after an incident. One goal, for example, could be going once a week to attend a specific activity in the women's center or meeting once a week with the neighbor or the, or the sister or a friend for, for a tea, for example something that will help the survivor to break this isolation. Obviously, the, these, these goals have to be very realistic, so something that can be achieved and should be set by the survivor, not by the case manager. The case manager obviously can try to repeat or remind the survivors the, what came out from the assessment, but ultimately those goals should be set by the survivor. So I think this is very important because often in some context, GBV case management is understood as identification and referral of cases, while GBV case management is much more. So these aspects of setup of personal goals, this psychosocial component is extremely important and is an important part of case management. So it's not just identify the survivor and refer it, it's, uh, it's much more and it's extremely important. So all that can be documented in a plan, of course, if. Uh, if possible, this will facilitate, obviously, the follow-up of the case manager. I'm glad that you mentioned that about the personal goals, because a lot of the time what we hear is people having a misconception that they're doing case management if they refer people to other services. And, and really, case management is much broader than that and, and more Absolutely. encompassing. And setting personal goals is one example of that, in addition to many others. Absolutely. On documentation, obviously there's a lot that you want to document in this step because this is a lot of information to hold on to. So we're looking at a case action planning form that could be a paper form or could be online in a system like Primero, uh, GBVMS Plus. What do you think is really important to 
do well or do right in this case action planning documentation? Well, it's important to write down uh, what actions needs to be taken, who is the person responsible to take this action or to facilitate these actions from happening, and when this action should uh, take place. I think these are the three important uh, things to make sure that are documented in the, in the plan. Adding this written down will be helpful when the case manager follow up with the survivor so that uh, the case manager can remember what actions the case manager itself was responsible for, first of all, like, for example, as we said before, facilitate the referral, and then can also monitor the service the survivor was referred to, if there was any service, and make sure that they were also provided in a timely manner. So it's also a good practice for both the case manager and the survivor to, for example, sign the case action plan, so that is also a sort of a form of consent, written consent, actually, of the survivor to the, to the case action plan. I love that idea. And it promotes this idea of accountability and also transparency at the same time. This idea that a survivor can have access to any of the information and they own it. And so what you're talking about here is really making sure that what you're doing is clear and documented and documented in the, in the way that the survivor would like it to be represented as well. Definitely. I mean, we, we always need to keep in mind that all the information and all the actions we, have been, we are taking, the owner of all the process is always the survivor. The case manager is just trying to help the survivor and facilitate this whole process. But ultimately, the owner of all of this is always the survivor. So I want to talk a little bit about high risk cases. When it comes to case action planning, what is unique when you're talking about a high risk case? If there is any urgent concern that arises, especially regarding the health or the safety of the survivor during the course of, this, of the action plan, for example, there might be suicidal thoughts or decline life-saving health services, or there might be a mandatory reporting issue that affects somehow the access of survivor to service. So in these cases, it's really important that the case managers have a person, a supervisor, to go to and discuss these cases immediately as soon as possible, especially if the, if the case managers are not particularly expert or experienced. So in many of the contexts where we do work, case managers are often not so much experienced. They don't have years and years of experience. So this gave me the chance to highlight once again the enormous importance of having supervision for case managers. It's not enough to train case managers and let them go and start to deal with survivor. They deal with survivor. The case managers and the case management process can have a huge impact on the life of the survivor. So they need someone there within the team that they can reach out immediately if there is a high risk or urgent uh, concern arising and that they can support it. We cannot just let them by themselves because Case management can do great, can be a huge support for the survivor, but if done in the wrong way and by a person who is not enough expert, could even do harm. Yeah, and this is one of the, the things that comes up a lot as well. I talked earlier about this misconception about what is case management, and I think that supervision is another key piece that really gets missing from this process a lot, that we see when we go places, and people have good intentions, no doubt, but are under the impression they're doing case management and they may not have a clear idea of what case management is or a clear structure for supervision. 
which is really important with these high-risk cases in particular. Definitely. You can spend uh, lots of hours reading the guidelines or attending trainings, but ultimately when you find yourself in front of a survivor, each case is somehow unique. Mm. So if you're not enough experienced, you might get stuck at some point, not really be sure of what to do. There might be survivor at risk, life-threatened with suicidal thoughts. So we can really not leave case managers alone. Definitely the supervision is extremely important. So we started this podcast talking about the connection of case action planning to the assessment phase. But I want to I go the next step. So how does case action planning connect to follow-ups? So there are contexts where follow-up is uh, definitely feasible. In other cases, maybe it's not so much feasible. But let's start of the context where follow-up is possible with survivors. So the case manager should discuss with the survivor the options for the follow-up visit to be as much specific as possible. So when should take place, where should take place, and explore which is the safest solution for the survivor and, of course, also for the case manager. But let's ask the survivor where she prefers to meet and when, the modalities. So, for example, we could make uh, appointment for the survivor to come back to our women's center, for example, if the case manager is working in a women's center. Or we could meet the survivor somewhere else, for example, in, a, in the office of another organization. Or we could uh, call the survivor by phone if the phone is easily accessible to the survivor, or even do a home visit, even if, of course, doing home visits in the places, in the houses of the survivor, can have some uh, also for the case manager. But still, if, if that's in that specific case is safe, that is another, is another option and is another solution. It's important that the case manager discuss with the server what obstacles could prevent the survivor from being able to make a follow-up. The obstacles can be physical or simply emotional. So while the survivor is seated in the room together with the case manager, might be easy for the survivor agree on meeting a specific day and a specific time in a specific place. But once they go back to their normal life, to the daily life, they might have uh, many issues that arise and that can prevent them from uh, um, attending the follow-up. So it's important to brainstorm with the survivor about what might be this obstacle, for example, a transportation issue, a childcare, the time, some fear that they might have, some stigma-related issue, shame or worry. Discuss any of these possible obstacles and try to identify the possible, uh, the possible solution. The other case is context where the follow-up is not possible. So we might have, uh, uh, we're talking about humanitarian context. So we might have a situation in which people are moving. So we might meet a survivor in a specific site, knowing that the survivor is, is just passing by. So in a few days, maybe even a few hours, she might not be there anymore. So in those cases, obviously, it's very likely that we won't have another occasion to spend time with the survivor and to have a follow-up with the survivor. So if we're already sure or fairly sure that this person won't make it for a follow-up, we should make sure to give the survivor the full information she might need of any other support contacts, make the plan, put the plan in place, uh, a plan, of course, that, as we said before, has to be realistic 
even in a context of a person that is moving from, from place to place. Um, and then, of course, if there are safety risks, we might also want to do uh, a safety planning. All of these that usually can be done maybe in more session, obviously, if we are fairly sure that we won't meet the survivor uh, a second time, we should try to make all of this, to cover all of these aspects in, uh, in, our, in our case action plan session. So with this step, you're summarizing the survivor needs captured in the assessment, you're providing information about services and supports that are available, and accompanying expectations. You're developing a plan to meet those needs and setting personal goals, documenting the plan, and discussing relevant concerns with your supervisor, and then laying the groundwork for follow-up. So thanks for joining us today, Laura. Thanks to you, Christy. And thanks for listening. As always, be responsible with your data and learn more at gbvims.com. <laughs>